This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Vito Ayudo is one half of the indie band, The Welcome Wagon, along with his wife, Monique. He's also the pastor of a Presbyterian church in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. I come to the garden alone While the dew is still on the roses And the voice I hear calling on my ear The Son of God discloses I am from... Tecumseh, Michigan, which is this little rural town outside of Ann Arbor. I didn't grow up really in the church. I found out about, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, I always knew that I'd been baptized in this Presbyterian church. Neither of my parents were really very church, and we didn't go to church growing up, but there was this picture of me being baptized in a Presbyterian church. And then about seven or eight years ago, my mom just says offhand, you know, we baptized you before that. And I said, what? And she was a Roman Catholic. She still is. And she said, well, you know, I was with your uncle Mike. (laughs) (laughs) And we were scared that you would go to limbo or purgatory or somewhere. And she says, we baptized you in the sink when you were a couple of weeks old. You know, if you ever looked at a Roman Catholic missile and in the beginning it says, if there is an emergency, anybody can baptize and here's how you do it. Wow. And And my mom's emergency was that she had married my very wild father, <laughs> and they had had me, and they baptized me in the sink. So Wow, that's fascinating. So I've actually been baptized twice. Usually when people have been baptized twice, it's because they came to Jesus when they were 16 at a camp, and yeah. I got baptized twice before the age of two. So That happened to my wife, actually. She was a few weeks old and got diagnosed with spinal meningitis. Oh, wow. And she's in the hospital, and there's all kinds of sort of back and forth. And her mom just says to the doctors, I'll be right back, and takes her to the bathroom and oh. baptized her in the sink in the in the bathroom in the hospital. Oh, I kind of love that. Yeah. That's really amazing. And then like two months later, she was baptized in the church. They were yeah. Methodists, but it was similar. And I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, obviously, especially in evangelicalism, there's this heavy press against sacramentology, and it's that don't have this suspicious, superstitious magic idea of the sacraments. But you also have to believe what the Bible says about baptism, which is really says some insane things. And I love the idea that her mom said, I'm going to go do this for her. I love it. I love it. Well, and then the funny thing is when she was in middle school, she had like a conversion experience. Of course. So then she got baptized by Yeah, of course. So she's like, I've done it three times. Of course, yeah. So she's covered one way or the other. Yeah, story's not over. It could be. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows? When I was in seminary, I was playing basketball with these guys and I went back to their room and uh, one of them went down to take a shower. He said, there's some water in the fridge. And so I sat down and I'm watching the Simpsons and I'm sweaty and I haven't taken a shower yet. But I grab one of the Poland Spring waters and I <laughs> I throw it back and my mouth is filled with sand and little and silt and pebbles. And I spit it out and I see at the bottom of this uh, bottle is all filled with just debris and and I empty it out in the sink and I'm actually mad at this guy. I'm you know he offered me water out of his fridge and I think you know that's not very kind of you to offer this and he came back and I'm so embarrassed about this. I threw the empty bottle at him. He's just empty, you know, just kind of right. playfully but also mad. I said, "Hey, 
what's with giving me this dirty bottle of water? <laughs> and his face got real you know, serious. And he said, I got that out of the Jordan when I was in Israel last year. I was going to baptize oh my, my first son with that. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I drank it down. Oh so I'm baptized on the inside too. So you... <laughs> <laughs> well, so you th- you thought, I mean, it's a perfect pr- setup for a prank. Like, oh, grab some water, yeah. it's in the fridge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. And we're all like in our early 20s. And so that's the kind of thing you do. But uh, the kind of thing you don't do is to drink right. your friend's holy water. Well, you'd think he'd label it. <laughs> <laughs> and why does he have to refrigerate it? Right. right. <laughs> There's a pine wobbler sitting on a hollow limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him with everything he sees. From the branch that he's sitting on It seems to hush the leaves And the colors all around Now first he sings And then he goes And what it means It's hard to know From Harbor Media, you're listening to Cultivated Conversations about faith and work I'm Mike Cosper, and today I talk to Vito Ayuto about becoming a musician in his 20s, about working with Sufjan Stevens, about his journey as a Christian and a pastor, and about the challenges of pastoring in our particular cultural home. Stay with us. in a complicated home. In some ways, it was a really loving and caring home. But my dad was an alcoholic and he's a drug addict my whole life. And that was a real formative part of my life. You know, it was sort of a loving, caring environment and also a really complicated and somewhat chaotic environment. And Mm. so I think as I've been working that out, as we all do, as you get older, you sort of are thinking about where you came from and how that formed you. And I know that that formed me a Mm. lot. It had a lot to do with my desire for security or my desire for structure. He went into rehab when I was in high school. It didn't quite take, but that happened when I was in high school. And that kind of shored up our family a little bit, but church wasn't an important part of our growing up. And when I went to college, I definitely would just called myself an agnostic. I just lived kind of a really banal uh, college life. It wasn't really much to speak of. I mean, it wasn't even, right. it wasn't even interesting. <laughs> you know, it wasn't, it was just... So it was an animal house. You're not like I was in a fraternity. Party. Yeah, I was in a fraternity, but just when I look back on it now, it just looks like sort of a flat gray. You know, it's it's kind of sad. I mean, I wish <laughs> I could have been a little bit more rebellious in my rebelliousness. It was just a very conforming kind of mm. life. And so, but in the middle of my junior year, I had a conversion experience. I came to faith in Jesus, and it was I was by myself. It wasn't friends who led me. It came clear to me that I was sort of standing with both feet planted in midair, that I wasn't going anywhere and I didn't know what my purpose in life was. And I can say all these things now in retrospect. I mean, I kind of dress them up now, not dress them up, but I understand them differently. Then I just thought, I'm scared and I don't know what I'm doing. I don't have a purpose. And I was thinking a lot about death. And so I remembered, (laughs) I remembered these radio preachers and TV preachers that I'd seen a little bit. And I remember them saying, you know, you should be saved. And all of a sudden, it seemed really existentially true. I need to be saved from something or someone, myself, God, the devil, Mm -hmm. death, like all the above. 
And so I started praying a sinner's prayer like all by myself and ended up starting to attend a local Presbyterian campus ministry. It was nearby. It was at 11 a.m. I could walk to it. And the pastor there was this woman named Colleen, and she was amazing. She was really sweet to me, really kind, and went really slow too because I didn't know anything. You know, I was just such a baby. And I sat in the back of that church. It was a campus ministry, but it was kind of a church too, for six months, just kind of listening. And at that time too, I was also, I, you know, I sort of, I became a little bit like that person who goes to every Bible study. I was feeling really want, like I wanted to learn. And the first two books that I sort of read that were so influential to me was The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Mm. An old friend had given that to me. And then also Mere Christianity mm. by C.S. Lewis, obviously. And so those two things, but it was especially Bonhoeffer because, you know, the first couple of chapters of that book say, this is a matter of life and death, mm. you know, and that felt like what it was to me. It didn't feel like something that you would, you know, I love youth groups and I love even campus ministries, but sometimes those kinds of things, and I can say this as a, I was a campus minister for three years, sometimes those things get reduced to fun time on a Tuesday night and it was, you know, really great and you're kind of flirting with the girl. like, And all those things are great. That's not a bad thing. But I was running around feeling like this is a matter of life and death. I'm dying. I almost died. Mm-hmm. I think I might be alive now. I think God might be real. And reading those books confirmed, you know, and I didn't even know the romantic backstory about Bonhoeffer. I didn't know he wrote that. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I mean, I'm just reading it and he's just saying, this is real and it doesn't get any more real than this. This is the only thing you should give your life to. If you give your life to anything or anyone else, you've missed it. So let me ask you, like, if you did campus ministry and you obviously have a generous attitude towards it, how do you reconcile those things? Because I'm a kid, like, I grew up sort of polar opposite. Like, I was in the youth group. We were in church every opportunity we got. Yeah, Literally was in a youth group in the 90s where it was like the youth groups that get parodied now with the smoke machines and the laser lights and the Journey cover band and the whole nine yards. So how do we get from the one to the other, right? Like, from the seriousness of of the tradition itself yeah. or, or of a Bonhoeffer or whatever to the more sort of casual, like you were saying, like, yeah, you, you have a good time, you flirt yeah. with the girls, yeah. you know. Like, how do you reconcile those two phenomena? I, I think that you don't, you can't be too, I mean, I'm being kind of judgmental here. You know, you can't live your whole life on tiptoe and you can't live every single moment as if there's a gravity that's just nailing you to the floor. Like, not all of life is like that. Mm-hmm. You know, life is talking about the final four and it's talking about a mm-hmm. record that came out and it's making sure that you're going to pick up the laundry for your family or whatever. So all those things are part of it. I'm not saying that. Sure. And for a youth group, some of those things are, what's that game that you play when you stuff your mouth full of marshmallows? Chubby Bunny. Chubby bunny. Right. Sometimes life is Chubby Bunny, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. But... I also, as a pastor, and I don't think I did this well as a campus minister, but I tried to take the students seriously. And I tried to take their hopes and their fears and their aspirations really seriously. Mm -hmm. Even though it was easy for me to have such a jaded attitude and think, you think this now, but you're a sophomore in college. You know, you're going to get over this. Mm -hmm. Somebody coming and saying, hey, I had my heart broken by this person. And there was a part of me that thought, you'll get over this. You don't understand. You know, you're going to be. And then the other part of me that I tried to be more present, you know, both attitudes are fine, but to be more present and say, yeah, this might be the worst thing that's happened to you yet in your life. And Mm. the worst thing that's ever happened to someone is the worst thing that's happened to them. And so to try to say, here's where God might be speaking in this. Here's where your faith might be intersecting here. And I have a friend named Christian, and he's a great friend and a great sort of mentor as a pastor in some ways. And he went through some really traumatic events. And in that time, he would go to churches, and he was always dismayed about pastors who would preach or lead in a way 
where they weren't taking it really seriously. Mm-hmm. Again, you can, I think, overdo this, but he, he said, you know, never forget that if you're in a room and if there's more than 10 people, one of them is probably really going through something heavy. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're in a room with 150 people, there are people that are, their hearts are breaking. They're really sad about what's going on in culture. Their marriages are falling apart or whatever. Every time I stand up in a church, I think I'm speaking to the person here who's hanging on by a thread, I hope, Mm -hmm. or speaking to the person that might be turning the corner into some kind of hope. And so I'm not trying to, you know, youth pastors are, they have a hard job because here are these human beings who are in this tumultuous time of life and they're learning how to be adults and... So yeah, you have to fill up the solo cups full of Pepsi right. and put them out. You know that's great. So it's a tension that I think I think about all the time because in the church that I helped plant, like it was definitely a kind of a high energy environment in the early two thousands. It was like very cutting edge. Like yeah. we were, people were like, "Oh, you're part of the emergent thing," and we yeah. were, and we were always like, "No, we're not part of that. Yeah, we're yeah. our own thing." You know, <laughs> which confirms that you are right. <laughs> and as I get older, I get more. It's not that I get more cynical, but I get. I, I spend more time thinking about my wife and I had a friend of ours passed away. She was 34 years old, passed away of multiple forms of cancer that she'd been battling for two and a half years. And every single week for her cancer battle, if she was able to get up, she'd get up, she'd be at church, she'd be about the third row yeah. and she sang her heart out, you know? And so I think about like the gathered church and I think like that's what it's about, right? Yeah, like yeah. preparing her for her encounter with death, right. which, oh which she was prepared for, you yeah. know? I just feel the tension of that all the time. And when you talk about your own experience of coming to faith was this moment of going, uh, I don't know what to do. Like, I need I need to be saved. Yeah. I worry. And do we have churches or is our sort of evangelical movement able to hold that well? We certainly have a faith that's able to hold that well. Right. Do our institutions, do our churches, celebrity culture yeah. and the race to stay relevant on top of kind of the culture's edge. Which would be a really interesting conversation to have with you being in Williamsburg. Like yeah. you're in the heart of, right. you know, a cultural hub. Right. And so I imagine the pressures to like... No, it's not. I yeah. don't feel that at all. And I'd never really felt it. And I don't know, I'm feeling a bit of, I don't know if it's pride or if it's affection for my church. Because I actually think our church does a great job of being able to contain and inhabit a faith that addresses those questions. And I don't know that that has an awful lot to do with me. It has a lot to do with the people in our church. And, you know, listen, we're in Williamsburg and it's not lost on me that we're at this cultural hub, although who knows if Williamsburg is a cultural hub anymore. Even though we're in Williamsburg, we've never felt a push to be relevant or to be cutting edge or any of those things. I think most of the people that come to our church are looking for hopefully maybe a place where that's not on offer or that that's not one of the main issues, you know. And it's just like what you said with Sojourn, people would say you're emergent. And you say, no, we're not. And for 12 years, people have been saying, you have a hip or hipster church. And for 12 years, I've been saying, no, we don't. Yeah. And I'm both right and wrong. Right. I'm wrong. Because if you that, were the hipster church, you'd say, we're not a hipster church. Exactly. Like by saying it, I'm <laughs> confirming it. Right. And you can go in our church and look around. And yes, yeah. there are people that dress and have the aesthetic of what you would call hipster. But it's also, our church is just really traditional. And by traditional, I mean, we're just trying to inhabit the good news of Jesus in our songs and in our sermons and in our reading. And the people that are there, as I can discern it, they're there not because they're trying to have a cultural experience, but because they're trying to meet with God and they want to meet with God. And that's the most important thing. And we really try to push that. I'm not good at, I mean, we've just never been like that hip. We honestly haven't. I I don't, Mm. I don't know how else to put it. In our churches, it's small. 
You know, there are probably mm-hmm. 140 people there today. There's not a high production value, although the music I think is just amazing. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't have anything to do with the music. Mm-hmm. Our music people are great. Our leading is so great. And I don't know, having this conversation makes me love our church because mm-hmm. I love the people there and I love the ethos that's developed that I think is trying to do what you're talking about, which is we're trying to deal with the most real things, meeting God, loving our neighbors, loving ourselves, forgiving our enemies, all those things that are at the center of the gospel. Yeah, it's a gravity in every single church that mm-hmm. wants to pull you towards, there are books on how to grow your church mm-hmm. and they tell you high production value, this, yeah. that, and the other. And the fact is they work. I know. The reason people do it is it works. I know. You know? I just think about it a lot. Yeah. I just think about resisting it and I think... It's a funny business to be in. Yeah, It's it a is. funny, really yeah. funny business to be in because it just pulls you. And again, this probably doesn't fit. Like this is more yeah. two pastors talking shop. But I think about it when we talk about stewardship because I really do want people to be sacrificial with their money. And then I'm also like, I also want to keep the lights on. Right. And I enjoy eating like two or three times a day <laughs> and I get paid by the church. And so sure. I've got these dual competing motivations. And really I'm hoping just to get to people have them be disciples of Jesus. But you know, I know that I have mixed motives for it too, which I'm always battling against. So it's, yeah. a, it's a weird trade to have. Yeah. I always think, one of the things I always think about with ministry is something Kevin Twitt said. I think you know Kevin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. He's always has this quote that I think he got from John Whitley, which is that the work of the ministry is preparing people for their encounter with death. You yeah. Know? I think of that. I think of something that Keller said, which was probably along similar lines. But Keller's point was to say, our whole society is structured to help people avoid their mm. encounters with death. Yeah. And so that makes sort of the faithful work of the church that much more difficult and countercultural. Yeah. There was a woman in our church named Carrie Wong, and she was in her early 30s, and she was chronically ill for about 16 months. Mm. And then she kind of got well, and then within a couple of months, she was diagnosed with stage four brain cancer. She lived about another nine months, and then she died. And that is the largest tragedy that's happened in our church. And it's also the event in our church which grew us up the most Mm. because it made everybody come to terms in a new way with the reality of death and the truth of suffering, like real suffering. And it also made a lot of people sort of step up and become grown up in a way. You know, you have to grow up when those things happen. When parents die, you grow up. And when you get a job, you grow up. And when you're called to something new, all of a sudden you have to show up. You know, I'm not trying to sort of instrumentalize her death because her death was both just a horrific tragedy and her life also was a great testimony to God's faithfulness. But the blessing of who she was has echoed through our church for years. It's Mm. really astounding. And, you know, of course, that's the gospel, right? Out of death comes life, you know, and out of the darkness of her death came this light, which I think is still present in our church. And you can't manufacture that. You can't, you, in some ways, don't even want to ask for it to happen. But then when it does happen, you hope that you can have the Spirit grow you into something new.
That's your story. So you come to faith. You're yeah. The, you're the guy that was at everything at the church. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, I would go to all these Bible studies and I was trying to figure out what I'd gotten myself into by becoming a believer in Jesus. And I went to a lot of Bible studies and I read a lot. And up to that point, I ended up graduating with a degree in English Lit. And so the thing that I loved the most growing up as a little kid and in high school and in college was reading stories and also music, you mm. know, like all that tumultuousness in my home. I spent an awful lot of time with headphones on, mm -hmm. listening to the Beatles. Like I just wore some records out. And mm. what that did, I think, was it made me into a person who loved stories and loved songs and found meaning in those things. And so when I became a believer, all of a sudden I started reading the Bible and it became my favorite book, you know? Mm. It became this book that not only had these just amazing, terrifying, strange stories, but also that God was inhabiting those stories in a really profound way and was speaking in them. And so it wasn't too long before I realized that's what I want to do with my life. I want to teach and read and think about the Bible. Mm. And I didn't know if I wanted to do that vocationally or what, but I knew that I wanted to be around the Bible and thinking about it all the time. And so the woman who was my pastor in college, Colleen, she had a group of us and she said, do you want to go on this sort of uh, exploratory couple of days at McCormick Theological Seminary? It's in Chicago. It's part of a consortium of seminaries there. And I went there and I couldn't believe it. Mm. There are people that all they do is sit around and talk about the Bible mm -hmm. and theology. I thought, man, this is my tribe. I just want to be around this mm. all the time. And so I went there and I thought, I'm going to go to seminary. I'm going to go here in Chicago. It's nearby relatively to where I grew up. And just as I was thinking about going to seminary over there in Chicago, I met this woman who was living in New York City. Her name was Monique. She had grown up in the same town that I grew up in. But we met over the summer right after I graduated from college and right in the middle of her between sophomore and junior year. And after about three days, I knew I wasn't going to McCormick Theological Seminary. <laughs> I was looking desperately for a seminary that was near to New York City, you know, so get out the map and Princeton. I've heard of that. <laughs> you know, that's, I, that has some sort of uh, reverberate somehow. And that's why I went there. I didn't know anything about it at all. Mm. I didn't know that the endowment was so large. I went and interviewed with the admissions person and, because I had no money. Our family had no money. And I applied and I said, if I get in, can I defer my application or my acceptance? Because I may have to work for a year to save up. And the guy looked at me and he said, if you get into Princeton, money will be the least of your worries. Mm. I said, okay. So I got in and money was the least of my worries at that, at that institution. At that time, their endowment was like a billion dollars Oh wow! for less than a thousand students. Wow. So I went to Princeton. I wasn't even sure if I was going to be a pastor. I didn't know if I was going to do a PhD. I didn't know what I was going to do. I really just soaked up reading the Bible and mm. thinking about it and I just loved that environment. I loved being able to talk about theology with other people who really cared about it. And so through that process of being at seminary, I did end up coming to the conclusion that somehow I was probably going to be a pastor. I graduated from Princeton and moved to New York City. I got a job at a church on the Upper East Side on Madison Avenue. Great church. And this man named Fred Anderson was really kind to me as a pastor there. And he hired me on to do, the title was Director of Community ministries and missions, basically helping them to give a lot of money away to, mm. to a lot of organizations and also helping connect their people to volunteer organizations. But he also said, I'm going to let you preach some and I'm going to let you teach a lot of Sunday school and you're going to really learn what it is to be a pastor. And he did do that. Mm. And while I was there, I realized that I wanted to learn how to play an instrument mm. and I wanted to have our family be able to sing songs together because, you know, 
in some ways music was really important to me growing up. And I wanted to replicate that, but I wanted our family to be able to learn these songs. Were you married by then? I was, yeah, yeah. I got married and I moved to New York and I got a job and that all happened, graduated all within like a span of like two months. Huh. So I ordered a guitar through the mail and it came in the mail and I opened it up and I just started to try to learn how to play the guitar. Mm. And that was concurrent with, it must have been within the f- couple of months. I was out in the street in front of the old knitting factory and a friend of mine said, hey, I'm putting together this Christian arts expo festival, something or other. It was called Christ a Go-Go. <laughs> so this friend of ours, Catherine said, and I'm putting this together with these two friends of mine. Here, meet Melissa and Sufjan. Just to be clear, he's talking about singer-songwriter Sufjan Stevens. These two people, Melissa and Sufjan, who were going to the new school at the time for creative writing. And so he came over like, uh, I don't know, a week or two later. And he said, oh, here's a guitar. Do you play guitar? I said, no, I just bought it. I just bought it and I'm going to learn how to play guitar. And he said, can I retune it for you? And I said, I guess if you want to. And he put it into this really strange tuning and played a few things and then he tried to put in a different tuning and he broke a couple of the strings. <laughs> He's like, I'm sorry. And then he left. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay. And uh, then he came back later and he restrung it and put it in standard tuning. And so I was trying to learn to play the guitar kind of on my own and through books. And I don't even think I had an internet connection then. I mean, a lot of times I'll try to learn things now by looking on YouTube. But What year was that? 99. Okay. I mean, I, our, our, our church had an internet connection, but I didn't. I don't sure. even think I had a computer in my house. And, and there certainly weren't like a, a dearth of YouTube videos right. or anything like that. Either, yeah, you know, yeah. The way it is now. Yeah, so, you know, I, I started to learn to play. And, and part of the reason I brought up Sufjan is because that's when I started to learn how to play guitar is when I really got to know him. And he had so much to do both with me learning music and also Monique and I playing together. But it's funny because when I first met him, I didn't even know he was a musician. Mm. I had no idea that he was, you know, he had made this record when he was at Hope. It seemed like then everybody I knew had a record, you mm-hmm. know, everybody, you know, he'd learned how to press a CD and just about everybody you knew said, I just made this record and then they would hand <laughs> it to you. You know, they never asked you what you thought of it because right. that wasn't the, you didn't want to know. You no. didn't really want to know, you know, right. everybody had done one. And I remember one morning, Monique and I were cleaning the house and, you know, our friend Sufjan made a record. Okay. And we put it in and we pushed play and, you know, we're walking around the kitchen and cleaning and stuff. And about four or five songs in, we thought, oh, this is real. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> he actually knows how to do this, like yeah. in a spooky sort of way. Yeah. So he had so much to do with our learning music and becoming musicians. Mm. Was your wife a musician at that point? As well, or? no, but she, you know, you kind of look back and you think it feels a little bit like, uh, you know, Mr. Miyagi and the Karate Kid. You know, yeah. you were doing something and you didn't realize how much it had to do with. Mm. And for me, it was, I mean, I logged like hundreds and thousands of hours with headphones on listening mm-hmm. to the radio, but also listening to the Beatles and Van Morrison and all these songs, so much so that, like, in probably an unhealthy way, they're ingrained in my head. Mm. For Monique, her mom is a choir teacher. Mm. And she grew up with all these show tunes, you know, like one of the first mixtapes she ever made for me was of Irving Berlin songs, you know, Mm. which I thought was super cool, you know, like, (laughs) you know, someone who doesn't hand you the tape with R.E.M., it's actually Irving Berlin. That's like next level stuff, you know. So she gives me this, but she grew up with all of these show tunes, especially our first record. We thought of it as kind of a showpiece, you know, like we put all this production value into, you know, the packaging of it. 
and thought of it as the kind of this fun variety show thing. And she grew up around that a ton. Her mom produced those things and sang in them and did them in high school choirs and stuff. So Monique grew up around that, but neither of us was trained. I played a trumpet for one or two years in junior high. Didn't have a ghost of an idea how to play an instrument. Tried yeah. to play piano, never worked out. Mm. I'm not that much better of a guitar player. I mean, I've been playing guitar for like 12 years and I'm like two steps beyond incompetent. It, I'm really, <laughs> it's really sad. Talking about listening to music though as a way that prepped you for it, it made me think of, have you ever read Keith Richards' memoir? No, I want to. Oh, no, it's I want so to. good. Yeah, yeah. It's so good. I mean, there's big sections of it that are like, Uncle Keith smack cookbook, you know? <laughs> but um, my favorite parts of the book are him describing the music at various points in his life yeah. and what it did to him. Yeah. There's this section where he's talking about his childhood, how he had a shortwave radio and would lay in bed at night with the covers over him so, so that his parents couldn't hear the radio. Yeah. But he'd lay there with his covers over him, listening to Chuck Berry yeah. and Elvis Presley on the radio and then falling asleep. And he's like, it did something to me. It, yeah. it clicked things in my brain so that when the guitar came, I was ready for it. You know? Yeah, it, I totally think that stuff's true. I totally yeah. think not only the way that music works structurally or it's kind of made up and then when you learn it, then you might have some more fluency in it. But I think even the sort of feel of it or the meaning that it has for you I know for me, being able to play music now almost feels like doing witchcraft mm. because what it did to me growing up and the way I felt about it and the way it scared me and the way it made mm -hmm. me feel powerful and the way that I used it to get away from things that were troubling to me and now being able to do that, I feel a little bit like Harry Potter. Like I feel a little bit like when we play either in a live venue, it kind of happens in one way and also being able to hear things that we recorded and think oh my gosh, we did it. Like we cracked the code or something mm. like that. It feels like alchemy, like we turned it into gold, you mm. know? I mean, that's the power of the arts, right? Mm -hmm. Like uh, Dan Seidel describes it as like, the artist is always like, the artist is making a gesture, hoping almost like a dancer, there's a responding, yeah. you know? I think about that a lot. This idea that like as an artist, the power of the arts and the danger of the arts is your ability to make somebody feel something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think your story is encouraging too in that like that came later in your life. Like most yeah. people don't start playing guitar in their 20s and then go someplace with it. Yeah, you know? I don't, I don't, I wonder why I didn't take it up before. Like, I almost think, I almost feel like I didn't have the audacity to do it before. Like, I thought that's what other people did. Like, I didn't know that I had permission to. And I think also writing songs and playing them, to stand up in front of other people, it takes a lot of gumption and a lot of ego and a lot of courage and you got to be kind of full of yourself, all those things. And I thought that can't be me. I'm not going to do that. I, th I thought it was, I don't know, beyond me somehow. And even doing it now, I sort of tread that line between feeling like questioning my motives as to why I do it. I remember we went on tour with Sandra McCracken about six or nine months ago. And there was a young woman who was there and she was kind of backstage and her mom was kind of goading her on and saying, play Sandra that song that you wrote. It's really great. And she said, I don't want to, mom. I don't really want to. She was really <laughs> shy. And she said something like, I don't want to go up in front of people. And I said, it's only a few really insecure people that have to get up on stage in front of other people and do this. Like maybe she's yeah. better adjusted. She doesn't need to work this stuff out in front of other people, right. which is I'm not saying that's, that's what, why everybody does it. And I'm not even saying that's why the main reason I do it. But if you're not at least cognizant of that reason why you get in front of people, you're in danger of fooling yourself and really damaging people. I think the same thing about being a pastor, even if I didn't do music. If I'm not cognizant of the fact that there are a lot of motivations for me getting in front of people, 
if I'm not thinking about that and trying to work on it and trying to be at least mindful of it, I think that's really bad. I mean, if somebody ever comes to me and says, you know, I just, I just get up there for the Lord and it isn't about me. Okay. All right. All right. Yeah. It's not about you. All right. That's fine. Yeah. You know. So, so what does, because I think that's totally true. It's somewhat universal. Like that's true for CEOs. That's true totally. for founders. Totally. Like, so what does sort of checking in on that look like? How do you temper that or hmm. keep an eye on it? I mean, some things when I think about preaching, I'm always really suspicious of any preacher who tells a story that they're the hero of. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of just a small structural thing, but I'm trying to convey something that doesn't have to do with me. It has to do with me in as much as it's passed through me. And therefore, you know, I speak English, I speak with this nasally Michigan accent. Like mm-hmm. I'm speaking it with my own kind of feel or whatever. I try just to, to talk to myself about it a lot. You know, that same friend, Christian, you know, we talk about how, you know, if I come to church and there are a lot of people there and I preach, then I feel good. Mm-hmm. And if not a lot of people come, it's Super Bowl Sunday or it's raining out and not a lot of people come, I feel bad. And I think, okay, why do I feel bad about that? Why do I feel somehow like this is a show and people showed up for me? Like, I just always try to be mindful of that. And I think maybe to answer your question, being mindful about it is acknowledging it. Mm-hmm. And thinking, all right, I feel this way and I might feel this way the rest of my life. Mm. I might think about it when I walk out and it's a big full crowd. I might think, yay. (laughs) And if not many people are there, I might think, oh, you know, okay, now what do I do? How do I live out of that? Am I going to let that drive me and motivate me? Is it going to make me feel terrible? Is it going to make me change things just so I can have a different experience of yeah. of worship. So I think it's mostly acknowledging it. I try to talk to other pastors about it too. There are a couple of people that I'm, you know, that I'll disclose things like, you know, I'm tempted in this way. Mm-hmm. I'm tempted by these kind of seductive feelings about being powerful or admired or all those things that, again, if pastors ever tell me that they don't struggle with those things, I don't trust them. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm the rank fell, horrible person (laughs) in the midst of all of this, which I'm sure I am, but I have a sense that other people are feeling these things too. Yeah. Well, it makes sense that like kind of awareness is the first step Yeah, because it's so easy and it's so obvious when people aren't, there is no awareness. Right. Right. You can smell that on somebody. How would you answer that question? What, how would you say just besides being mindful of it, how do you keep the focus on the work and on the service and on the joy of just doing it? I think the way you just described it is a helpful layer of awareness too that's necessary. And you said this a few minutes ago, but this this, you know, the person who shows up and says, you know, well this wasn't about me, this was all about the Lord, you know, yeah. this was all external, you know, I was yeah. just I'm just a mouthpiece, I'm just yeah. a vessel. I feel like that's deeply intellectually dishonest. Yeah. Not saying, well actually we deserve the credit and we deserve this. Right. But at the end of the day like this is work and I'm called to this work and I'm burdened by this work so to speak. Mhm. So I want it to be good. I want it to have significance. I think holding that and being honest about that and then being honest about the real fruitfulness of particularly of pastoral work is in God's hands. Mm-hmm. But really, if we believe in a strong view of God's providence, it all is. Yeah, Holding those ideas in tension and trying to let, in a sense, let those two ideas have a conversation in your right. head, I yeah. think is important. There are a lot of tensions there because I want our worship, I want our music, I want my preaching to be really excellent. And so... Most of the time when you do that, or some of the time you're thinking, 
you're trying to be excellent or do something well, the temptation could be you're doing it in order to reflect well on you. And so, you know, there's a tension there. You can think, well, no matter what my preaching is like, or no matter what the music is like, God can still use it, but you still want to be excellent, you know? And so there's a competing thing in my mind. So there are a lot of tensions about, this isn't about me, but I want to communicate well. The focus is not on what I'm doing, but nevertheless, I'm going to focus on what I'm doing. I was not very good at all. And Sufyan asked me to tour with him. And these tours were really small. They would be three or four days like Boston and Montreal and New York and Philadelphia or going down south or something like that. But he had gotten opportunities to go and play. And this is right around the time that Seven Swans, I guess, came out. Mm. And also the Michigan record. And he asked me, I'm sure... Like 05? Yeah, like 03, 04, 05. And I know for sure he asked me because I was doing campus ministry at the time and I could get away during the week. I could mm. leave for four or five days. It certainly wasn't because of my guitar playing skills <laughs> at all. But I think he just asked a bunch of his friends. Mm. And that was super formative because I've always learned everything that I've done in my life, I think I'm more of a reactor than I'm an actor. Mm. And I sort of learn by sort of being present somewhere and then learning how to do it, I guess, myself. And so I had to learn all of his songs, you know, talk about learning how to write songs. Like I learned 20 or 30 of his early songs and learned how to play them and learned how they worked structurally and stuff. And that had a huge influence, I think, on me and on us. And he is such a gifted person. And by being alongside him as he was kind of growing into the artist he's become and is still becoming, it gave me a picture of what that would look like or what it could look like and how he was doing it and ways that were unique to him and how then that could be transferred to what it might be to be in a church or other people or our music. And so that was a huge education and it was also an education because around that time, he was making those Christmas records that he put out later commercially. But initially, he was just sending them out to friends. And usually he'd like choose one friend and they'd record for two months or two weeks in October. And then he would send it. And the second year he decided to do that, he did it with Monique and I. He said, we make mm-hmm. some Christmas songs with me. So he came over to our house and we spent like a week and a half making all those songs. But at the same time, he said, well, let's just make some more songs. And so we started mm-hmm. making gospel songs And he would ask me, well, do you have any songs? Have you written any songs? And that was really encouraging because if somebody asks you if you've written any songs, it assumes that you can write a song, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's implying that that's something that's available to anybody, or it's at least implying that it's available to you. You know, it's giving you the confidence to say, I'm expecting this from you or something. And so that's when we started writing the Welcome Wagon songs and we started recording them. And, you know, when we first started doing that, 
Asthmatic Kitty was just this tiny, tiny, tiny right. label. And, you know, I don't think Suf had sold many records. And then we continued to make these songs over weeks and months. And then Illinois came out and kind of exploded. And, and that's when I got kicked out of the band. <laughs> um, you know, he apparently wanted a guitar player that could play chords like B minor <laughs> and didn't want, you know, a guitar player that couldn't play any leads. Like he's really yeah. picky, you know. <laughs> Shara Warden replaced me, oh, you know. Well, yeah. So yeah. she looked better in the cheerleading outfit than I did. <laughs> She's 25 times better at guitar yeah. and 30 times better at singing. And I'd love to have the photos of you in the cheerleading outfit for the it's promos. In, it's, in the, it's in the it's in the pullout of the uh, Illinois vinyl. Oh, really? There's a picture of all of us standing around in these. It's a terrible photo. It's just so <laughs> awful, and I see it now. I can't believe I acquiesced We're into doing this. Him. But of course, it was really exciting to be included in it too. Yeah. So, anyway, when he, you know, when that record did really well, putting out a record on Asthmatic Kitty was so. It was a different thing. Mm -hmm. But he, you know, from the very beginning, he and everyone else at Asthmatic Kitty were really kind. They said, we want to put this record out and we want to spend a lot of money on it. Like the packaging for the record is really excessive. There's mm -hmm. a 35-page booklet in it. Mm -hmm. And as you know, when you make a CD, you know, they say, oh, if you have two colors, then right. it's this much. It's right. three cars. Ours has like nine and it has a shiny red. Right, embossing. Embossing on yeah. it. And it's got an it's insert. Beautiful. It's really beautiful. And he and everyone else were just super generous. And then they said, you don't have to tour. You don't have to go out and promote this. You don't have to do anything. It's going to lose a lot of money. Mm. And we want to do it like this. Mm. And it didn't lose a lot of money. But the point really was that they were prepared to do that. And that is reflective of his character. Mm. But it was really exciting to get... It was just a project he wanted to see in the world. Yeah, and I think so. so he was willing to lose money, do whatever yeah. it took to make it... Yeah, I've seen him do that with a lot of different people in different ways where he's really... I mean, he's really gifted in a lot of things, but one of the things you might be most gifted in is helping other people do things creatively. Mm -hmm. You know, I've seen him do that over the years with different people, like using visual artists and choreographers and videographers. And he's always sort of like a theater kid, like, let's make a show, like everybody mm -hmm. do something. And I think in a way, like in planting a church, that's kind of what planting a church is. Let's make a show. You can do music. You can make the bulletins. You can make sure that the accounting works out so I don't go to jail. Let's do this, you know? <laughs> when did church planting come in? Right around that same time. Really? Yeah. While you're making that first welcome record. Yeah, 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 it was. It was right around, yeah, so the welcome so you record. So did, you did campus ministry for three years at what what school? At NYU, NYU with Reformed University Fellowship. And I did that from 2001 till 2004 and started planting the church in 2005. Mm. And the first welcome wagon record came out in 2007. Wow. It's a lot at once. Yeah. What made you look at church planting in particular? Because I wanted to stay in New York. I mean, it, it's a lot of things. And again, I can go back and say and see that my motivations may have been these things, but also I'm really glad now that there's a church that exists mm. in Williamsburg that would not have existed had all those people not been there at that time. And I'm really proud of all, a lot of the things that have gone on there. But a lot of my motivation was I really wanted to stay in New York and I wanted to be a pastor and I wanted to be a pastor in New York. And so, you know, I talked to a few people about that and they said, well, that's sometimes how God does things. Mm -hmm. You know, you have a desire for something and God gives you that desire. I'm not your typical church planter. I'm mm -hmm. not kind of a, I don't know what I am. I, I don't feel, when I would be in the room with other church planters, it just felt like they were 
far more accomplished at being motivators and get up and go and raise the money and do this. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I just never felt very good at that. I think that's reflected somewhat in our church. Like Mm. our church is kind of a DIY operation Mm -hmm. for better and for worse. There's some great things about it. And there's some things that have been not so great about it for Mm. a lot of people involved. And so, but that's what I did. I planted a church and I got into that largely because I wanted to stay in New York and because, you know, the Redeemer Network is doing that. You know, mm-hmm. and so that was the circles that I was swimming in. And it was like, well, you can plant a church. All right, I'm going to try that. And I did. So here we are 12 years later. And there it is. What would you say are, are some of the parallels between your work as an artist and your work as a pastor, mm-hmm. if there are any? Obviously, the one common thread is me. I mean, that might sort of be obvious, but I guess the common thread is whatever weaknesses or strengths or gifts or the things that I bring to it. So I'm not sure I have a good answer for that. I don't know, maybe kind of going back to what we talked about before, because music is a performance, you're performing for people and you're getting up in front of people and you're performing. And then when you're preaching, you're also getting up in front of people. I think that those two things have at least leaned into each other a little bit. And I think I've tried to make my performance a little less like a performance, hopefully, that it would just be inhabiting something where I'm present. I'm present to the people who are there. They're part of it too. And I've hoped that what we do as musicians has less to do with our egos and less to do with our gratification in some way, being admired. Again, all those things are still ringing around in my head. They're still banging around, but I guess that's one thing. I love your attitude about it. I think what you exemplify is kind of a non-moralistic approach to that. Like you recognize those thoughts happen. That's just the reactivity. You seem to have this attitude that says you just kind of have to let it be and try to keep it out of the driver's seat. Oh, I'm saying that to you now. Like, it's very easy for me to say this right here. Listen, I could yeah. I could introduce you to a few people who realize that yeah. I'm still really struggling with this. And sure. I don't like, like, I like being able to verbalize actually right now to you that I just have to let go of it. I'm talking to me right now as much as I'm talking to you, like, yeah. this is not what it's about. It's okay if you have these feelings, you know. Even saying that, it's okay to have those feelings. Yeah. Keep them out of the driver's seat. Yeah. What you often hear is something that's more sort of a puritanical, literally puritanical, like, well, you got to put that thought to death yeah. and make sure that you never have that thought of yeah. feeling anymore. Yeah. I just realized, at least for me, that's not how sanctification works. Mm. And I thought that it did. I've read the Puritans and I like the Puritans. But I, for a long time, thought the way that I will become holy is that I will put these things to death and I will no longer desire this thing that I shouldn't desire. I will no longer be plagued by laziness. I will no longer have these self-loathing thoughts or these self-aggrandizing thoughts. I will no longer have them. And I've come to the conclusion that I hope that I can have them less, but I'm still going to have them. Mm -hmm. They are still going to come down the chute and I've got to figure out what to do with them. You know, and I bet if you went back and read the Puritans, they would actually probably say something more like that too. It's easy and it's a popular sport to sort of demonize Puritans or demonize certain aspects of Reformed theology. But I bet you they would say the same thing. The most important thing is how you live your life and in what direction you're pointing and you're trying to, you know, that's what repentance is, right? Turning towards God. Mm -hmm. And that's always the right place to turn towards. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Grant us your peace, grant us your peace.
grant us your peace. Grant us your City, being in a place that's so culturally hip, so to speak. I asked Vito, how does he think about our particular cultural moment when the church is experiencing tremendous pressure, when we see this continual rise of secularism? What does he think about it? One way to think about the way that secularism has, I don't know, that it pushes us in the church is just by the sort of tyranny of the individual or the tyranny of individual choice. Those are things which, beyond the culture wars, they're probably more insidious because they're a lot less visible. And that's not anything that I'm coming up with. You know, obviously everybody's saying that, that I think one of the biggest enemies of the church is not like all these sort of cultural hot button issues. It's a kind of sense that the individual has autonomy and the individual can choose what's right and what's good for his or her to the exclusion, let alone God, but others in a community. And so that's probably the way that I've seen it quite a lot, you know, in our church and in my life and in our community. You know, we're in Williamsburg, we're in Brooklyn, and I think that there are some things that are unique to living in Brooklyn and living in New York. But I also think there's a lot less difference between New York City and Ann Arbor, Michigan or Louisville now than there was 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. 30 years ago, the cultural difference and distance between those places was pretty great. Mm -hmm. Now I don't really think it's all. It's just a matter of scale at this point. Mm -hmm. I visited Louisville about two or three years ago. I really loved it. And it reminded me of a lot, you know, like the kind of Brooklynization of the, right. you know, and some of it looked really conservative and some of it looked really progressive. And, and you could see right. these things kind of butting up against each other. I don't know. I don't know that there's something really specific to Williamsburg. The other thing is, is I think I'm the worst cultural critic to answer these questions because I've never been an adult anywhere else but New York City. Mm. I moved here right after grad school and I've been here the whole time and I've worked here and all my friends are here and my community and my family and my friends. And because of that, I don't have a good vantage point on what being in New York City is about. It's just my home and it's mm. the place that I live. And I think that there's sometimes this feeling that like you live in New York and you're at the center of things. And, right. you know, <laughs> I remember in Tom Cannon did the RUF gig before I did it. And he said, whenever he would go somewhere, church planters would talk and say, I'm planting a church in what's basically the Greenwich Village of my town. Right. And Tom was like, I'm planting a church in the Greenwich Village of Greenwich Village, you know, and those right. things were really different then. And it was really important to be in Greenwich Village. I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm not sure that living in New York really has the cachet that it used to have. I don't know. I don't know what your thoughts are, because I think you've probably traveled more than I have. You've lived in more places than I have. But it seems to me that it's not, you don't have to be here to make things happen in the same way that you did probably 30 years ago. No, I mean, I've lived in Louisville for 25 years. Um, okay. So I'm definitely, yeah. I, that's the world I know. Yeah. I love it here. There is something about the way the world has changed. I mean, Thomas Friedman's whole thing of the world flattening, right? right? right Where right. culture emerges from all kinds of places now. I mean, some of the best films in Hollywood these days are actually not, they're in Austin or Atlanta. I mean, Atlanta's this now this big filmmaking hub and that's just right. one example. So... 
Last question. I imagine being where you are, that there's probably a lot of people in your church that are in creative industries and yeah. are artists and that kind of thing. Yeah. What have you learned as a pastor about like shepherding artists? What are some yeah. themes that have come out of that? Our church is really filled with musicians and songwriters and people who are kind of full-time, you know, bloggers or who are actors and so on. It never seems that different to me mm. than the way that it would have been had I pastored a church where I grew up. It feels more like I'm supposed to be present to the people in my church and help them to see where God is and have them help me to see where God is. And I'm wanting them to give their life and their vocation and their resources and everything into the stead of Jesus. And so over time, simply because I've spent so much time around visual artists and musicians and so on, then you have a certain parlance and you feel comfortable around those things. But to me, it feels better to not think of them as being particularly mm. unique. Mm. You know, we do this with the welcome wagon. Like when my dad rewired the house, he would invite his friends over who were electricians and carpenters and they would buy a couple of cases of beer and have a pot of chili and they would do this thing. And that's how things happened. That's I see the exact same thing happening when people make videos and records mm. and stuff like that. It just doesn't seem that much of a different life to me. Mm. And so... I may have at one time thought like, oh, here's this exotic thing. There are musicians in our church and actors. And it kind of seems unique, but the actors that I know, they're trying to pay their bills mm -hmm. and they're trying to keep their marriages afloat and raise kids and trying to figure out what happens next. And the pressures that they're under are really the same pressures that, you know, there are a number of academics in our church too looking for tenured jobs, trying to figure out how they're going to get to the next thing, having to bounce along. There's all these people who are adjunct. It, it seems to me the same thing. Like there are actors and musicians that I know, they're just piecing things together. Right. And it's the same with our professors and it's the same with our school teachers. And it's the same. It just seems like the questions are always really the same. Mm -hmm. They're about, oh my gosh, did I choose the right vocation? Am I with people in community that love me and that I love them? Is this where I'm going to make a home? Is this... Am I finding meaning here? Am I engaging with God here? Am I helping to make the place around me? Am I being used to help bring the kingdom of God here? With artists and creatives, it just seems like it's just not that much different. You know, I'm really glad that I get to go to their shows. I'm really glad I get to hear them sing. It's really nice to be around people who create beautiful things. Our worship band might be a little better than your average worship band. <laughs> uh, and I'm not talking about the welcome wagon. I'm talking about our worship band. Sure. They're crazy. Yeah, you know, because all of our all of our musicians are these session musicians around New York, and sure. they show up on Sunday morning to to make a buck, and then they also contribute to the life of our church. And so, but besides that, I just don't know if there's that much a difference. And I like that. Mm. I never wanted our church to be. This is a church for creatives. This is a church for artists. There are some churches where you might feel like ah, I don't know. I'm an actor. I'm a creative. I'm probably on the outside here. And yeah. like our school teachers probably feel like that in our church, you know, mm. you know, I have to stand up on a Sunday and be like, don't worry, you know, if you're an engineer, God can still use you, you know, <laughs> instead of like, if you're a poet, God can still use you, you know, like in our church, though, I never wanted it to be, you know, we don't have an arts ministry. We just have a bunch of people who are doing a yeah. whole bunch of different things yeah. and trying to love each other. So oh, that's great. And that, that last point is yeah. so true. Yeah. And that's part of the reason Sojourn started was there were all these people who just kind of felt like 
my work doesn't matter to anybody yeah. in the church. And so yeah. you know, this sort of creative community forms together and the church gets planted. And I'm not saying that those churches don't have longevity. I'm not sure. saying that at all because my church is one of those churches. My church isn't so different from Sojourn, I'm sure. And I know that in a particular moment, that meant the world to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Like I saw people weeping at the village church because... Mm-hmm. They were included and because people were, you know, and Mako Fujimura was one of the elders and people were just, you know, who would come out of maybe big mega churches in Memphis and in, in, in the South and where they're basically saying like, oh, you're in the arts. I mean, I hope you're making songs about Jesus, right? You know, which is what the welcome wagon does, you know. Right. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's what we do. Now first he sings and then he goes and what it means. It's hard to know. Our show today was produced by me. It was edited by TJ Hester. It was mixed by Mark Owens. Our music today was by The Welcome Wagon. They've got a new record out, and you should go get it. Our theme song is by Roman Candle, and here's exciting news. They're my guests next week. Special thanks for this episode goes to John and Jenna Stark. All right, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com/equip.